welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we're talking about Amadeus Milos Forman's great film about uh, who else but Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. We're talking about it with Mariana Astor. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Amadeus is a 1984 American period biographical drama film directed by Milos Forman and adapted by Peter Schaefer from his 1979 stage play Amadeus. It is set in Vienna, Austria during the latter half of the 18th century. The film is a fictionalized story of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart from the time he left Salzburg, and it's described by its writer as a fantasia on the theme of Mozart in Salieri. A couple quick reminders. One, we have playlists that accompany each of our episodes. You can find those playlists linked in the show notes. These are songs that Sarah and I think about when we uh, think about the conversation that we've had, when we think about the movie that we've talked about, and people seem to like them. You can find that linked in the show notes. A quick reminder that there is a You're Wrong About live stream coming up on February 14th. I bring this up because, of course, you love Sarah. Uh, And also, you'll hear from Carolyn Kendrick, who produces this show. Uh, Carolyn will sing some songs. And you'll hear from friend of the show's Jamie Loftus. Uh, You'll also see them both on the internet, (laughs) which is how live streams work. You can find that at moment.co slash you're wrong about. And you can join the live stream there. It'll be available for seven days after it streams, just in case you don't live in the U.S. And watching a live stream means that you'd have to be awake at three in the morning or something like that. You can watch it live or you can watch it for seven days after. Find out more at moment.co slash you're wrong about. You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon or on Apple Podcast subscriptions. By supporting the show and uh, helping make the whole thing possible by throwing a few dollars uh, at it every month, you get bonus episodes. Last month's bonus episode was about Megan and uh, the menu. We heard a lot of great comments from folks who enjoyed that conversation. Thanks to y'all for weighing in on that. And this month, we're going to talk about the first season of Sex and the City. And maybe that's very much your cup of tea and you love Sex and the City. And maybe it's not your cup of tea, but you know, Sarah and me, you know how that conversation's going to go. We're going to talk about Sex and the City. We're going to talk about everything imaginable under the sun. So join us on Patreon or Apple podcast subscriptions. Support the show by doing so. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you. And uh, this month, listen to us talk about the first season of Sex and the City. And one quick content warning up top, there is acknowledgement of suicide in this episode. So if that's not something for you, we don't get too deeply into it, but know that it comes up. And if that's not something for you, know that we have other episodes in our library that don't require a content warning of that sort up top. All right, everybody, that's it from me. For now, at least you'll hear from me at the end of the show with some credits. Until then, let's go back in time. Hello, Sarah Marshall. I'm trying to think of how they said hello in uh, 18th century Europe, and all of them escaped me. I can't believe our show started as a show called Why Our Dads. Mm-hmm. And we did not touch this movie, which is just about a man poisoned by resentment 
who takes it out on everyone around him. Classic dad text. Who's struggling with his relationship with God. Classic dad text. I cannot wait. Who are we doing this with, Sarah? Well, first of all, I know why we didn't do it. And it's the same reason we didn't do Tanya Harding until like we were fairly deep into You're Wrong About. And it's because when something is my most favorite thing, I want to get real comfortable with the thing I'm doing before I bring it into it. Classic tourist shit. You got to get two years in before you're ready to go. You do. You just do. And we're talking about it with my friend and astrologer. Yes, my astrologer, Mariana Astor. Hello. I am so delighted to be here and be a part of this community on this side of things. Long time listener, first time caller. Very <laughs> delighted and very delighted that this is the film that we're going to be talking about because as Sarah and I have noted, I, we both have a lot of feelings about it and I'm good at feelings. So I think I'm qualified to be here. Yeah. So Mariana, tell us about yourself before we uh, dive into the plot of uh, of this epic. <sighs> Yes, uh, Amadeus, or as I'm calling it, the trouble with troubles. <laughs> I'm a poet, which means I have a lot of other jobs because <laughs> I'm a poet. I am an astrologer, as Sarah said, and so that is part of my jobs. And then I also do such unexciting things, although I think they're exciting as brand marketing, content marketing, content strategy, because that actually pays the bills, something that Mozart can really understand. You sure can. Oh, Sarah. What's your relationship with this movie? And uh, what is this movie? Amadeus came out in 1984. And because it's such a good movie and has a reputation as being a great movie, because it is great, and it's adapted from a play, which is also a very prestige thing to be, it has a reputation as being, I think, kind of a serious, sedate, boring costume drama movie, when in fact, I think this movie has a lot more in common with something like Alan Parker's Pink Floyd's The Wall. Sure. And I would call this like a rock and roll classical music movie. That was very much kind of the energy when it came out. I was a preteen and there was very much this like, wow, Mozart was so punk rock and look at his crazy wigs and look how wild it is. And it really kind of appealed to this different audience than I think a traditional art house film would as, as far mm -hmm. as I remember. And I think I appreciate that fact more than I ever did before. It always felt mm -hmm. a little bit forced and heavy handed. Mm -hmm. And now uh, it gives the movie a lot more freedom than mm. it has because there's always interior scenes, right? I think you're barely ever outside. And if you are, you're in the street. We're not outside. There's like a brief shot where yeah. they're in a field hunting, but like, that's kind of it. That's, oh, and then there's a funeral, of course, yeah. a lovely funeral. There's a small snow scene and it was so memorable to me because to your point, it's we're just never outside. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's just penned in by this world entirely. And so we mm. see expressions of his rebellion that ultimately, you know, fall to nothing. Hmm. It's directed by Milos Forman, who had recently done Hair. And also One Floor with a Cuckoo's Nest, which, Mariana, you pointed out that that makes two psych ward movies for him, which is very interesting to me. And later, Man on the Moon and the Larry Flint movie, which are mm -hmm. about these types of characters, but are about people in and out of, for lack of a better word, craziness. Yes. And my connection to Amadeus is that my dad really loved Amadeus. And so I have been watching Amadeus since I was three, which 
sounds pretentious, but what I mean by that is that my dad would often just like put it on when the way a parent would put on Moana when he was taking care of me because it would keep me occupied because I would like dance around during the singing and dancing parts, which is really like most of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And he liked watching it. So it was a win. My dad really liked doing things where he didn't have to technically be supervising me, but I couldn't really get into very much trouble either, which is also why we loved malls and we loved Costco. (laughs) And I remember as a little kid being very freaked out by the opening, which is that Salieri is a very old man now. His heyday as a composer is behind him. His friend, the subway ghost from Ghost. (laughs) The only way I ever described that man. Yeah. Vincent (laughs) Chiavelli is visiting him with what looks like some lovely donuts and mascarpone. Mm. And we establish that we're in the streets of Vienna. We go to Salieri's house and then his friends force open the door because he's in there going, Mozart, forgive me, I killed you and then crash sounds come out they're like that sounds bad and so they force open the door and we see that salieri has cut his own throat which when i was little you know what my dad told me that was do you want to guess would it be ketchup no oh okay (laughs) alex he cut himself shaving yes and that was like i was good with that is the amazing thing (laughs) i was like okay well yeah it's sellable it's sellable. Right. And so my dad didn't shave that often. And when he did, he often would cut himself a little bit. Yeah. So it was like, Salieri is just terrible at shaving. <laughs> but in reality, what's actually happening in the movie, it turns out, is that he is overcome with remorse and guilt over the fact that he feels that he killed Mozart, who has been dead for 32 years. And so we open with Salieri being carried in a giant wicker Moses basket through the streets of Vienna, where we appear to be during the Napoleonic Wars, based on the fashions, and the fact that it's 32 years since Mozart died, which I think happened in the 1780s, somewhere around there. He had a similar lifespan to Marie Antoinette, which... We learn about one of my favorite historical what-ifs in this movie, which is Emperor (laughs) Joseph telling the story of his own little sister, Antoinette, helping the child Mozart up when he fell after giving a performance and baby Mozart saying, will you marry me, yes or no? You know what just struck me as I was texting you earlier about how funny it is that you're on, I feel like, at least a rhetorical moral crusade against movies that are unnecessarily long, especially over 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. And two of your favorite movies are, well, one's a made-up epic. This is a quasi-made-up epic, historical epics, Titanic and this. Yeah, I mean, they're both equally amounts real and made-up, I guess. Yes, So, and we'll get into all that. But the thing that strikes me now is they both follow the same structure. Hmm. Hmm. Oh my god. The old person is telling a story about the their younger drama and then we return to them at the end in the same <laughs> same exact fashion. Yeah. This now and then Titanic, same structure. It's I mean now and then isn't one of my favorites cuz those no. ladies aren't old and miserable enough. But yeah. yeah. They're they're halfway there. Totally. Well, <laughs> and it, and it's a, also a structure that ends with like we return to present day. And the person who's just finished telling their story and kind of feels like they've had a catharsis and the person who has been listening to them is like shocked (laughs) to their core. (laughs) I like to think, dude, that he told this story in 10 minutes. No, you you can actually, they establish that like the priest comes to his room 
it's daytime, it becomes night, and then when he leaves again, it's the morning. So they're okay. talking all night long. That's why he's so haggard. Exactly. He's tired, too. He's, like, too polite to be like, well, my shift actually ended nine <laughs> hours ago, so... So, okay, so he's taken to a very scary institution um, where he at least has a private room and he doesn't have to live in the hallway like a lot of the guys in this place. Or in a cage. Or in a cage in the hallway. (laughs) Doubly insulting. And he's visited by a priest and he's like, I was once one of the most famous composers in Europe. Surely you remember this song. And the priest is like, eh... And he's like, what about this? And the priest is like, eh. And then he plays, da, 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 ba, 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 ba. Oh, yes, I know that. Oh, that's charming. And he says, I didn't. That was Mozart. Flashback. It's been 84 years. There's something so brilliant, too, about his old age makeup is shockingly good, even it's though we know so what, good. it's amazing. And well, we know what he grows up to look like, which is exactly this like F. Murray Abraham looks exactly the same as he did at that time. So that's kind of funny. But can we just like get it out in advance that F. Murray Abraham still clearly fucks? I mean, just look at him. But anyway, there's something about that old age makeup where you know, he looks drained of blood. Yeah. Like kind of an older person. But the inside of his mouth is super red because he's not very old. Oh, and yeah. When, when he responds to like, that's not my, like he basically says that's not his song, that's Mozart's. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's like a, he kind of looks like a horror villain for a minute and I love it. Yeah, there's a little bit of Bram Stoker, Dracula, Gary <laughs> yes, Oldman yes, vibes exactly in right. there. Yeah. That's exactly right. The old age makeup is to this day still some of the best old age makeup I've ever seen. And to your point, F. Murray Abraham has permanently been 70 (laughs) and available. (laughs) For 45 years, he's been 70 and ready to mingle. And from a casting perspective, casting him as Michael Imperioli's father, another perpetual fuck, it was perfect. Yeah. Fuck man, if you will. Another perpetual fuck man. (laughs) Yeah. What if you're a normal person? You never normally listen to this show, but you have like a school report due. You have to talk about what happens in Amadeus. You're down to the wire here. You're like, just please. I mean, I don't know why you're not on Wikipedia, but. <laughs> so nice of you to take the hard way out. Listen to us. <laughs> and hear us all talk about how horny we are for <laughs> Marie Abraham. So. Salieri begins his tale about why he believes that he killed Mozart. This is his whole thing. Can I? The only, I'm so sorry to interrupt one more time. I just want to say I feel there's a thing I want to talk about about the morality of using characters from history and making them worse than they actually were at some point. But I do want to. I do want to say if you are listening to this because you need to deliver a report, like mm-hmm. the only thing I know about Salieri is this profile I just read in the New Yorker about him about sort of his reputation. Now he didn't do all this. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be clear about that because I just I don't know why selfishly I'm like if someone made a biopic about someone in my life and then they just made me arbitrarily the enemy. I feel like that would be haunting. Mm -hmm. This Salieri is so good, but it's fictional. I just want to be clear. (laughs) As biopics are, because reality is not up to the standards of Hollywood. And so we make shit up. That's almost all we do. But 
yeah, real life Salieri apparently like had a nice friendship with Mozart. And more to the point, like there's just a lot we don't know about historical figures. We do yes. know that this Mozart in, is in many respects like quite true to reality. And I think that's part of why you can't have a typical biopic about this, because Mozart wrote a piece of choral music called Lick My Ass, <laughs> you know? I feel like <laughs> they should lead with that. Lead <laughs> with Lick My Ass guy. It's 2023. Like in the schools? Yeah. Yeah. This says everything we need to know about Mozart. And Alex, to your point, like as far as like using historical figures. So I dug around past the Schaefer plagues. I wanted to see, because I feel like this reputation for Salieri is so established. Mm -hmm. And it turns out like Schaefer actually adapted this from an opera like 200 right. years before and like Pushkin was actually involved in some at some point. So it's got like bones. It's got like legs yeah. to it. And yeah. it's been going on for a really long time. But Salieri was actually like married with six kids and right. having like vibrant affairs. Yeah, totally. Not chaste. And like his all of his friends who knew him and Mozart were like Mozart was a genius, but like Salieri was like a cool guy. Like that's like their takeaway. Mm -hmm. Like he was like a nice, cool guy who we like. And who also didn't <laughs> drop dead when he was 35. So when you think about it. Oh yeah. I just want I for some reason I feel like I'm doing some karmic duty by pointing that out so that if in the future, Sarah, they make a biopic about you, they're not like, and Alex was a prick. Like I just want <laughs> to be factual about my prickiness. Yeah, I was gonna say, do you feel like this because you're best friends with someone with <laughs> A really annoying laugh who can't manage money and has really weird ideas that nobody likes initially until they're forced to like them. Nope. <laughs> you need more wigs. Wigs and candelabras. I do. I don't I I don't have a single candelabra. Do you know how I observed Hanukkah? I took a bunch of tapers and attached them to a dinner plate. Oh it was God. very dangerous. A candelabra is thrown in this movie. It's yeah. so good. <laughs> Director's cut. Yeah, yeah Alex, did you watch did you watch the director's cut? I sure did. Yes. Yeah. It adds so much to the film. Yeah. Especially 21 minutes exclu explicitly. It's one of the director's cuts that I've seen that actually like makes an entirely huge difference, especially mm -hmm. to the development of Salieri's character and mm -hmm. Constanza's character. Yeah. And to, to also lead with that, I feel like the director's cut has become the default over time, especially as people tend to watch stuff on streaming services. I've seen the director's cut like twice and I've seen the non-director's cut 85 times. So to me, the director's cut is like this interesting sort of fever dream. <laughs> and yeah, I'm interested in talking about kind of what it adds and what it changes. Yeah, so getting back into our flashback, we learned that our fictional Salieri, not the real one, grew up hearing about Mozart because he was in reality as well, this like child prodigy who toured Europe performing for the crowned heads and was a dance mom's kid, basically, and had a dance mom's dad played by the coach from The Cutting Edge. And I also love that when they show little Mozart performing for all these like you know, royalty and the Pope and stuff. They're, the Pope, uh, they're always like the most hideous looking men they could possibly find. <laughs> I mean, this is a movie that's that has in a leading role Jeffrey Jones, and I know that that's not who you're talking about, but this movie casts ugly men, and I like it. I think Jeffrey Jones actually is incredibly good-looking compared to everyone else around him, which says a lot about <laughs> what context will do to someone. So 
Salieri grows up loving music, wishing he could be like Mozart, and actually wishing he could have a dad like his who, like, forces him to play music because his dad is a boring business dad who doesn't care about music. And then one day everything changes for Salieri because his dad apparently chokes during dinner and dies. And Salieri calls this a miracle. And then we (laughs) do a hard cut to him singing in a little boy choir as his father lies dead in his coffin. (laughs) How does he say it, Sarah? And do you know what happened? A miracle. And he's saying that like as his father is like choking to death and his back is being pounded on. Francesco! It's our first punchline. This movie has incredible cuts and I would call them like rock and roll cuts that we get where they're like very dramatic cuts that sort of, you know, like there's a scene where someone's crumpling paper and we cut to a herd of deer Mm -hmm. running away as if they were startled by the paper. It's great. And so Salieri jumps from being 14 years old to being 45. And now he's a court musician in Vienna. And he's working for Emperor Joseph Jeffrey Jones, who is also the brother of Marie Antoinette, which is just funny to think about Jeffrey Jones in Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. (laughs) He finally gets the chance to see Mozart when he comes to Vienna to perform some of his music. So Salieri is wandering around, kind of trying to figure out who in this room is the genius that I have admired all my life. And we also know that he has made a deal with God, which God did not co-sign, by the way, where when he was still a little tween growing up in Italy, he was like, dear God, if I don't have sex or anything, will you make me a genius? Don't say anything if the answer is yes. And he was like, okay, cool. <laughs> it's a very, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret moment. Yes. Yeah, are you there, God, it's me, Antonio Salieri. <laughs> yeah, and the rest of the movie is bitter about this not going well. <laughs> Imagine. That's Catholicism, baby. <laughs> I think the situation is that he knows he's not great, but he works hard. He's good at office politics, basically. Everybody likes him. The emperor likes him. He's good at being a suck up. He's good at playing the game. And I think he kind of feels throughout this whole movie that like, he's the only one who realizes that Mozart is a genius and better than him and everyone else. And everyone else is like, that's Celery guy. I like him. He's got a, a, a real nice demeanor. Yeah. And it should be noted that like <laughs> Mozart, like in this portrayal in, in, in reality, as I understand it, like is, su- I mean, is essentially superhuman. Like his, his mm-hmm. ability to sort of like fully compose something in his head and then get it out in like a single pass, like all of those things, I think, even if you are the best in your Salieri, mm-hmm. in your context or whatever, you're the best in Sali- your Salieri, but then you just know how much work has to go into that. And then just to know that there is a man who's not only able to do all this stuff, but is frivolous in all of the ways that you understand what God rewards mm-hmm. is just like a walking catalyst of an existential crisis every minute. Mm-hmm. And that's who we have to reckon with the entire movie, which I love so much. Yeah. Like just the existence of this man is essentially walking around and being like, we're not going to argue God doesn't exist because we all know God exists. But if he does exist, he fucking hates you because mm-hmm. he's rewarding this. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's one way to look at it. <laughs> 
But yeah, so he's he's at this concert. He's looking for Mozart, but then he gets distracted because he has a repressed sexuality, and therefore, I think he really brings that to his love of sweets. <laughs> and so he follows a like Trump loy dessert pineapple mm. into the dessert room, I guess, and then a girl with beautiful boobs that I cannot believe stayed in that dress for the whole scene rushes in and he responds by hiding which is interesting (laughs) they had to have shot seven hours of her in that dress and they just kept the one minute in which her boobs stayed in it I mean yeah and I just think that they had a big double-sided tape budget and also it's it's about skill you you bring skill to keeping your boobs in and that girl is Constanze Weber I don't know why I said it with that much accent. The beau of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who chases her into the room, and they just behave like two dumb teenagers, basically, mm. which is what they essentially are, although he's in his mid-twenties. And it's just like very teenage and he does some of the stuff that Mozart did in real life, which is to be very vulgar. He loved to talk about asses and farts and shit and to talk backwards and it's like, marry me, and then eat my shit. And then he's like, oh shit, oh no, my music is being performed without me. I gotta go conduct, bye. And Salieri is like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> How is this fornicating buffoon the vessel into which God has poured his music? Like, why is this, why is this happening to me? <laughs> I did everything right. <laughs> I followed the rules. <laughs> we're, we're quoting Ready or Not. And so Salieri, I think, is like still very curious about Mozart. And I don't know, I kind of think he still thinks they can be friends or something. And so he kind of engineers it so that Emperor Joseph brings him to his court and he composes a little welcome march for him. And then Mozart is like, this welcome march is shit. And like he doesn't say that, but he's like, oh, why don't I riff on this and make it something else? And just because it's like, his whole thing is that he just doesn't really care about other people. He's just sort of indifferent. Like, he's not being hateful, particularly. He just is really only thinking about his music is the thing. I think this is the first time we see his lack of self-awareness. And I think mm-hmm. his lack of self-awareness exists because he really grew up in this dance mom's bubble yeah. where he only had one chore. And, and we see that later in the movie when he goes to the potential client's house and to teach the daughter some some piano. And he is very upset by these dogs, right? He's seeing these dogs be handled by the by the owner instead of paying attention to his daughter. And he kind of defiantly stares at the owner while he plays piano to, to make the daughter more comfortable. And then we see this cut out to the street where the walking, the dancing bear passes by and then hmm. the dog on the ball. Hmm. And so we see this, you know, he is the dog, right? He has no awareness outside of his ability to make music. And I think that's the first time we see the hint of that is when he's like, oh, you could just do this and not realizing that it's actually going to have an impact on the politics of what's happening. Mm. Yeah. So Mozart comes and essentially like is oblivious to Salieri's 
little feelings. It's all about feelings. It's all about how men's feelings have deadly consequences, arguably. Especially if if not reconciled. I mean, mm-hmm. like the feelings are one thing. Like the feelings are fine, but like what you do or don't do with them is the right killer. And we see one person who's just feelings everywhere and seems to be doing fine. Mm-hmm. And then one person who's like, get back inside of me feelings and seems to be being bad <laughs> well, and like really good conversations would clear all of this up and we see this you know we see this in just about every kind of anti-buddy film that there is right or like even in banshees of inashir and it's like if y'all just had a talk mm. it would all be fine i like to think of this as an anti-buddy film is that a term that you just coined it is for you yes i love it what if the court composer is all day retreat and they did mushrooms together you know what about that <laughs> highly advisable in almost any situation ayahuasca <laughs> I'll write some fanfic about it. Capel Meister Buono gets stuck in the sauna, but he's okay. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> so basically, Mozart comes to work for Emperor Joseph. A lot of the runtime that gets added to the director's cut actually goes to beefing up this like opening central plot, I would say, of Salieri, undermining Mozart's attempts to get work teaching the young rich ladies of Vienna, which is kind of how you make a living because apparently you can't make a living off performing. Not at all like today. <laughs> I'm so glad that this got some some air that maybe it didn't originally get, but it seems like this would be an easy one to sabotage someone in, which is like, don't hire him, he'll fuck your wife. Or don't hire him, he'll fuck your daughter. Like I feel like game over. Like that's a it's an easy bout of sabotage, which we get. We get a little bit of, thankfully. And we what we get in the director's cut is like notably the scene where Constanzi Mozart, they've since gotten married, both brings Salieri her husband's music, which is what we get in the original cut, and he reads it and is once again freaked out by the genius of this fiend and just basically like leaves the room. And there's never more to it. And then the director's cut, there's a whole scene where he's like, all right, come back tonight and let's have intercourse, which I know all about. And then I'll give your husband a job. And so Constanzi, played by Elizabeth Barrage, who I love and have always loved in this role and who I think deserved many more roles this big. I didn't know that this was a not a piece that was in the original because I have not seen it or not the original, but the, I guess, theatrical cut. I'm glad that they added it because nothing more show business than, you know, a favor deserves a favor in return mm-hmm. or that implication from a man to a woman. And so I was glad that they offered it. And I was glad about the turn, which is she shows up and she's like ready to go and Mm -hmm. and as ready to go as you can be in a situation where you're being uh, manipulated. No, but she is ready to go because she's like, I feel like she spent the afternoon like gritting her teeth and is like, all right, I'm doing it. I'm going to like be the best that I can be at this horrible thing that I'm doing to keep my family together. Totally. And then in classic man who's devoted himself to things that he thinks God wants him to do or don't do, he gets real fucking weird about it and then has her uh, uh, escorted out of the house. 
Mm-hmm. It adds a ton to her character because without yes. that, we don't really see how devoted she is to her husband. We don't see the level of devotion and having to be the adult in the relationship at all times and do these morally you know, difficult things to keep them going and propelling them financially. But then also for Salieri's character, which I think we have to talk about her breasts again because it's a very important return that we have because at some point he feeds her a candy and it's like nipples of Venus or yeah. something mm-hmm. like this. And so, you know, her first introduction and then the point at which he turns her down, we're having this return theme with a, you know, tr- almost tragic lack of of mothers in this movie, really only mm. her and her mother who's depicted as a shrew. But, you know, where's the nourishment for all of these men who can't speak? Where, where is it coming from? Mm. Yeah, it's so obvious, but it never occurred to me of like they eat these like nipples of Venus candies together. And then she's like, what about a human woman's breasts? And he's like, <laughs> absolutely not. This movie also has, I feel like, it has a driving storyline, which is the thing of, like, Salieri getting to the part where he kills Mozart. But it's also, like, it's pretty episodic, and it's, like, opera to opera. Mm. And so we've also seen the abduction at the Seraglio featuring the wonderful Christine Ebersole, who was also in Thief of Hearts the same year. Very diverse resume. And Salieri realizing that, like, Mozart and his beloved soprano Katerina must have like had an affair at some point. We get some extra footage added to that in the theatrical cut. He's like, I don't know how they met or where. And then like, after I saw that, I knew that they'd had sex. And it's like, yeah, we all, everyone knew before. It's fine. (laughs) Let the vibe speak for itself. It really does. He's not versed in vibes. Yeah. And so we get basically him undermining Mozart and forbidding him from basically being able to support himself, real high school shit, by teaching lessons and kind of blackballing him that way. And also making a bargain with God where he's like, all right, God, I don't like you and you don't like me. And for as long as you continue to allow this fucking asshole to have all the talent that I paid for in celibacy then I will do everything I can to undermine your creation and destroy him (laughs) gradually. We also then gradually get to spend more time just with Mozart in the Mozart's beautiful apartment, which I think about all the time, as they're also getting spied on because Salieri has hired Cynthia Nixon. (laughs) Hell yeah, baby Cynthia. (laughs) Little Miranda. Oh, she's so wee in this. I also love that, like, I assume everyone else got, like, a full face of makeup and Cynthia Nixon showed up for work and they were like, you're fine. Get in there. Just go in there. And she nailed it. She did. Continuing the lifelong trend of Cynthia Nixon, like, never being made up to look as glamorous as her co-stars, as we also see in Sex and the City. Yeah, so Cynthia Nixon starts spying on the Mozarts because uh, F. Murray Abraham Salieri hires her to do so. And meanwhile, Papa Mozart has come to town, and we know that because he he turned up wearing his scary, sleepy hollow cloak that he always wears. <laughs> and what is a scary dance dad about but being embraced in the giant reaper cloak that also scares the big Jesus out of you? 
We get that scene too, right after he goes from the house with the dogs to in the street with the performing animals mm -hmm. to seeing his dad at the top of the stairs. It's like mm -hmm. this underline of the fact that he is his dad's monkey because mm. we never see the dad like be that abusive or toxic. Like he's like come to Salzburg over and over again. Mm -hmm. But it's really more that we are always seeing Mozart's reaction to him or behavior around him becomes very regressive. Totally. Yeah. And that Salieri can pick up on that too. The way that we're kind of like bound to him as audience members, because like we get to have insight piggybacked on his insight into what's really going on with Mozart is like, it's such an interesting part of it to me. Yeah. And so daddy Mozart comes home. They all go to a party. He's like, come back to Salzburg, basically. But like, you can see the power dynamic there. You can see the kind of absolute power that it feels like the old man has. So they're at a party where Salieri also is because luckily nobody knows what Salieri's body looks like because it's a masked ball. It also looks like a great party. There's several parties in this movie where I'm like, I would love to be at that party. And I never say that about parties. I hate parties. So this is also the party at which we have, I think, the somewhat parodied scene, Play Salieri, yes. where Mozart is doing impressions of various composers. And so he plays in the manner of Antonio Salieri, which how would you describe that manner? Well, I, I think, you know, immediately he kind of makes like a chimp face or an ape face. Like this is a very, you know, not very refined thing that he's about to do. And I think it goes back to the trick pony thing. It's like, I can mm. play upside down. I can play when I'm floating in the air. I can play all these different ways. And at the end, you know, finishes with a great burst of flatulence, which Salieri, I don't know if he could get more grim, but I'm sure underneath his mask, he's grimming even further. Yeah. And then Mozart doesn't do what his dad wants him to do. And then his dad promptly dies as if to punish him. And then Mozart writes Don Giovanni. And we see Salieri like watching in this very sparsely attended performance where the set is falling apart, watching Mozart like no longer the fun loving pink wigged guy we saw conducting the abduction at the Seraglio, but like just like sweating and miserable and like clearly kind of like going through some kind of internal psychodrama that the characters in this opera are mere players in. And we see the uh, commendatory scene where this big statue, who's the bad guy in Don Giovanni for I Forget Why, comes and is like, in the deepest voice possible, Don Giovanni, I've come to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> And so in this scene, the statue shows up and pulls Don Giovanni straight to hell. And this was a piece of music that I listened to on repeat on uh, Election Day 2020, along with the main song from Saw. Of course. <laughs> and then the whole set comes down and then everything crashes. Yeah. Salieri is like... Don Giovanni only played for, what, five performances, but in secret, I saw them all. And he's like, and that was how I realized I had a plan so terrible, <laughs> so fiendish. I just had to do it. We've also watched a performance and rehearsals and everything of The Marriage of Figaro, which is wonderful and, I don't know, just worth the price of admission on its own. 
it's like a tale of like hatred and resentment and vengeance, but along the way you're getting like a music appreciation course from Salieri, which is nice. But Salieri's plan is that he's going to buy the same costume that Mozart's dad got when they went to that cool party, and then to show up as a mysterious patron and commission Mozart to write a funeral mass, and then he's going to kill him somehow, and then he's going to play the funeral mass that Mozart wrote at Mozart's very own funeral while everyone is looking at Mozart's little coffin, and everyone will think Salieri wrote it. <laughs> while tricking him by dressing like his dad. Yeah. that Who he's losing his mind mourning. It's great. And you didn't realize this movie was fun. Because I thought it was a mortal beloved. <laughs> this is the problem, Alex. You, What if you think everything is immortal, beloved? It's hard to get ahead. You know what? In the future, I'm just going to enable this a little bit. If you think maybe something's not clicking with me, be like, do you think this is immortal, beloved? Yeah. As Sarah noted, there's big Hannibal and Will vibes going on. Yes. It's like wall-to-wall Hannibal and Will. Yes. And... I'll also point out that one thing I love in terms of like classical music shade is that Glenn Gould once said that he essentially like couldn't believe it that there were actually adults whose favorite music was Mozart, which is to say that like, I don't know, Salieri, maybe it's just your taste. Maybe it's not, you know, about what God likes, but what you like. And <laughs> yeah, so Salieri is like, I'm going to carry out this fiendish plan to destroy this man who I kind of am the only one who fully appreciates or loves the way he deserves in a sense. And that's why I have to kill him. And we're also, you know, we're getting more insight into the Mozart home. And what I think the movie shows us that I also love is that Mozart does have this very sacred relationship with his music. And I think that you are allowed to like, see him as like a gift from God, and maybe a less dangerous way than Salieri does and that like he's as we all are as even Salieri is a very flawed person who is able to step away from that with his art and to kind of surrender to something bigger than himself the whole theme of like I love you I must destroy you is big here obviously mm -hmm. but also it's like you know that tendency is universal in people who are like my ability to recognize that love and recognize your greatness for whatever reason I don't have the processing power to not take that as an affront to my being mm -hmm. and it's ironic maybe that's the right word maybe that's the wrong word that this is a movie you loved with your father mm -hmm. because it feels like that may have been a flavor of your relationship yeah. And I think also my dad's relationship with his dad. Yes. And it just gets passed along. Just dads. Da yeah, totally. Yeah. It's just dads all the way down. A very dadly dynamic. And we see that Mozart is burning the candle at both ends and he's starting to look worse and worse. And so basically... Very worse. Very worse. <laughs> he writes an opera for the vaudeville stage after going to kind of a parody of his work. And then basically he's like, okay, I'm going to write a vaudeville for you gonna have a magic flute in it but he needs money up front so he's also working on this funeral mass that Stanzi can tell is like really freaking him out and so 
Salieri, of course, goes to opening night of the vaudeville, even though none of the other, you know, royal court colleagues do, because Salieri is obsessed with him and he has to see it. And Mozart collapses Salieri, takes him home, and then is like, guess what? <laughs> wakey, wakey, you gotta write the funeral mass. Saw. It is Saw! <laughs> It's a real saucy. Or misery. Misery, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, it's misery! Yeah. Or misery is Amadeus, either way, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's yeah. misery! Mm-hmm. Ah! It is misery. Write it for me. I love you so much now that I have to kill you. Right. But I have to kill you slowly. Yes. Uh yeah, so he's like, your mysterious patron came, and he says that even though you're, like, dying of kidney failure or whatever, you gotta pull an all-nighter and write this funeral mass. And so, like, also, in a way, Salieri gets what he wants, finally, which is to be intimate with Mozart. Like, I'm convinced after this watching that all he really wanted was for them to be friends. But isn't that, like, all of, you know, isn't that what men really want, is just to yeah. have a more intimate friendship than what they have? Alex, am I wrong? Well, it's like the end of Rushmore, where that Scottish bully is finally written into the play. Yeah. And that, that's all he wanted was the role in the play. He's always wanted to be in one of your fucking plays. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so Mozart is like too weak to like write. So Salieri's like taking dictation. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna go to sleep. And Salieri's like, no, I'm great. I can keep going. And Mozart's like, no, I can't keep going, actually. And so they both take a little nap. Constanzi Mozart comes home with their little son. I think in reality they had something like four children. And she's like, you need to get right the fuck out of this apartment, old man. And then Salieri is like, oh, shit. The most unexpected thing possible has happened. And Mozart has died ahead of schedule. How could this have taken place? I mean, I think this movie could also be called Let's Scare Mozart to Death. Mm-hmm. And then we cut forward to Salieri. It's morning. He's spent. And this priest looks like he does not know what to do with this information. And then a guy who looks like Mr. Weasley, but I don't think is, <laughs> comes in and is like, it's your favorite for breakfast, sugar rolls. And then they cart him off to do whatever they did in uh, mental hospitals in the 18th century, which I don't think was good. So Salieri, I don't know, because no one wins. But they play some nice Mozart music, so you feel (laughs) kind of optimistic. And it ends with Salieri basically like blessing all of the horribly mistreated people who have to live in this hallway, chained up to the wall or in a cage or whatever. And he says, mediocrities of the world, I absolve you. And then we hear Mozart's beautiful laugh. <laughs> the end. Beautiful. I, speaking of this being a very Catholic uh, relationship that this man has, I love that he's deemed himself the saint of mediocrity. That's so good. And what do you think that means for him? Like, what is this ending, you guys? I don't know what the ending is, but I feel like he's in madness has embraced what he imagines his role is in proximity where like, which I don't think is, is that a true. It's about sort of like his perception that he is mediocre next to, uh, next to Mozart 
Mozart's just a, is a genius. And so it sort of like tips the curve. But in his head, he's like finally at ease with where he's at now that he's confessed his sin for hmm. 18 hours. But he's <laughs> embraced finally his role. And now he's absolving everyone who comes before him so that they don't have to live their lives haunted by the fact that they are mediocre. I mean, I, I agree. I think that, you know, we see Salieri slowly over time embrace his villainy, right? He starts mm -hmm. as this very kind of thinking he's chased and a martyr. And slowly, uh, it's really Mozart's genius that proves his villainy to him and to this final acceptance of, you know, I really have to wonder at the end, does Salieri think he can be rectified to God? And I don't think he does. I think he he really mm -hmm. thinks like, I am where I belong. And mm -hmm. I think we hear, we hear that when he's yelling out that he's guilty at the beginning, right? We hear that kind of over and over over is that he has become the whole thing that that he was trying to prevent by you know this vow of chasteness and all these other things and he couldn't he couldn't resist the temptation of Mozart mm. Mm. He also doesn't want to be necessarily the saint of mediocrity. He wants to be dead. Like he's here because mm. he tried to kill himself. And now against his will, he's being kept alive in this situation. And so this is where he's ultimately landed in purg he's in purgatory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and if he's, I mean, if he's attempted suicide, you know, obviously one of the primary Catholic sins, he's he's already way beyond mm. thinking that he can have some kind of peace. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. So I feel like this movie is so much about kind of ideas of artistic greatness. And I find that to be such an interesting idea to grow up alongside kind of watching this movie throughout, because at this point, I just feel like artistic greatness is just kind of a myth. And also, Mariana, I'm curious about, you know, this is a movie that you have also grown up with and grown up alongside as an artist. And like, how does that resonate? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a complicated movie for me, I think, like for you, Sarah, for a lot of different reasons. And so it came out when I was preteen. And I just remember it being kind of the first like art house film that I really remember people buzzing about. And that includes my family. And so it was really the first time that I was becoming aware of class. And so this movie resonates for me on that level. You know, when Mozart is comfortable, it's when he's with the working mm -hmm. class or servers or what, you know, service workers or whatever, mm -hmm. or uh, performers. And I didn't really understand what we were growing up because my, my grandmother had these really strange airs and acted like we were just like a hair away from upper class. And like, that was absolutely mm -hmm. never true. What were you failing at that you like, if you got the right forks, would you be there? Or? Well, we had the right for like we had the okay. right forks, crystal and China, like everything was very formal. But you know, my, my great grandfather sold bait like, mm -hmm. you know, fishing bait. Like we were never, this was never happening. Another word for caviar. <laughs> yeah, so much Illinois River caviar, right? <laughs> so I was, I really saw this and I saw her see this movie and she, you know, she really just kind of put on airs is the only way to put it. And mm -hmm. she really loved this movie. And I was very skeptical when I saw her liking this movie so much, which I hadn't seen yet until it came out on VHS. And hearing her talk about it, I was like, ah, you know, just something was ringing like really hollow for me and just like mm -hmm. not resonating. And I was like, I think it's the first time I like I recognized a poser. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, man, I just don't know about this. And so when I finally saw it, I was like, oh, she's just liking it because she's supposed to. And here's this kind of high class thing that's being interpreted as like punk rock and, you know, just so disruptive, but in a way that's really, really palatable for her. Mm -hmm. And I think that I resonated a lot with the idea of these people who liked Mozart's work in theory in the film, hmm. you know, the, the emperor and kind of the right. upper crust, liking it in theory. But then when it comes down to understanding it, just 
totally falling apart and favoring Salieri, but Salieri is the one who can actually appreciate it. And so I saw that echoed in our family a little bit. Mm. I, I just became very, very reclusive and, and private about any kind of art I was making because I was like, these people, they don't even know what they're looking at anyway, with the exception of my siblings. So, and this is mentioned, and if I remember it, and I probably won't, as is my track record, I'll try to link to this New Yorker piece about Salieri and like about what these these texts are actually about. Talking about what you're discussing, Sarah, is like reconciling the reality or myth of artistic genius and sort of seeing it as almost like a superhuman force. And I do kind of like, I know people who in my, Sarah, you're, you are one of these people, Sarah, to me, who like, you say things off the cuff that I know people who work years to get to in like, a, um, I know many Salieri's to your uh, Mozart. I hope none of them kill me. Oh, thank God. I mean, thank God they have not yet. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I know many people sort of like who would see what you are able to do as a blessing. And it's not because it was, you know, granted by a superior being or force or because sort of you you have it better in one way or another. It's because like Salieri, the belief that they did all the right things in order to get to a place where they're able to have what you're able to sort of do naturally is confronted by your existence. And so rather Mm -hmm. than going, maybe I should renegotiate my relationship with expectations, my relationships with what I think I should be doing, my relationship with what I need for celebration. Because at the beginning of the movie, like Salieri is not like, I want to make art I'm happy about. Salieri says, I want my name to be known to people ultimately. That is his value. And that is a curse that when you sort of like meet someone who's able to do that, what appears to be seamlessly or without sort of backbreaking labor or without a resentful relationship with God, et cetera, mm-hmm. you think you must be cursed. But like the issue is just your values are fucked up. Right. Or you're, you know, you're and I think we all do this because I think it's so human. But like we love to project and imagine that other people are OK in a way that we don't feel OK. Right. Because it's like fundamentally very upsetting to realize that kind of nobody is right totally and this whole thing of like Amadeus like Mozart has been gifted his genius by God and therefore he has what I want and it's like yeah but like he also can't work partly because of you and he's really struggling with money and he's like fucked up emotionally and he's impulsive and he's screwing up his marriage and he has all these issues that you don't have. And like, I think it's it's very basic to like want to believe that like we are struggling because we're the anomaly, because it suggests that like if only we could figure out if only we could write the marriage of Figaro, then we could just fucking coast. I saw this movie and again was struck by what felt like a radicalism about the movie. Um, And I was imagining, I was like, what was this like for people who saw this movie because they felt like they were supposed to see this movie because it's a movie about Mozart? And like, what was their relationship with it? Like, it was your grandmother who watched it who you were surprised by? Like, what was your take when you saw this movie? Like, were you like, why are you not seeing this? Like, what was your perception versus her perception. Yeah, uh, I think when I saw it, I remember thinking like I wanted there to be more like physical beauty in it. Like, Mm. I mean, that's just, you know, you want to see more candy, right? Because everything (laughs) is very, very beautiful, but it's so over the top, right? It's so Mm. Baroque. It's so heavy that there's very few moments of natural beauty happening in it. Mm. And so there's not a lot of relief in the movie. Like there's nowhere to go to feel better in this movie Mm. except for Mm. the music and Stanzi's boobs. 
Right. Yeah, the two great consolations of Mozart's <laughs> life. Gorgeous. But she's so wonderful in this. And I do feel like it's not the thing where you like marry somebody and you're like, wait a minute, I expected something else. It's it's the thing of like watching someone destroy themselves that gets to her, to me. Yeah. Watching someone destroy themselves and having to be the adult in all of these relationships, right? And her protection around him and her belief in him and her annoyance when he's going to do vaudeville and this this exhaustion that she ultimately develops, you know, once they have a child, especially, and, and her leaving, realizing that something's something's got to go and he's a grown human, right? He's a grown man, but then ultimately returning back, knowing that he can't take care of himself. Right. Can I add something too? I want to say about what mm-hmm. Alex was saying about Sarah. Like the first time I met Sarah was in a class and the first time she opened her mouth, I turned to my chair and was like, holy shit, because she has the thing that you were saying, Alex. Right. And I could see like, you know, all of us in the class who are, who are whatever qualified, but like, you know, some people are just like gnashing their teeth because she has that thing. She is, she has the intangible, right? It's coming through like an ore. It's coming through like a nectar and it's filling the room. And at the same time, you know, we have discussions all the time, she and I, about the fact that you have the thing that somebody else wants, but you don't have the other thing that you really want or need. And so there's always that between, and I think that with social media and the kind of the state, the, so then the evolution that social media is in, we're finally starting to see real happen again, right? People hmm. aren't totally made up when they're on screen. They're not, you know, you're coming with them on a walk or you're making dinner or whatever, you know, TikTok has, has shown that, but we're finally starting to see the cracks, which I think has needed to happen for a long time to understand that, you know, if somebody does have that kind of pure nectar, um, they also have all of these other things that they wish that they had what you have. Mm. And don't you feel like everybody has like some kind of nectar somewhere Mm -hmm. in their life? But it might not be a nectar that they want. Yeah, right. We always want, we we want more nectar. (laughs) To the point of your question, like I think similarly, a lot of people are brimming with nectar, but there is a structural force that is stopping them from being able to access it. And I agree with um, in social media, we are seeing people show the cracks. I mean, we're also quickly commodifying, I'm showing the cracks and which Mm -hmm. is going to be a form of Mm -hmm. not showing cracks. So like, I think it's unfortunately essential to the limitations of our humanity and perception that this is always going to be a struggle. There will never be a collective shift in perspective. It's like, this is part of the experience is the inability to see your nectar. Yeah. From the get-go, from the having to be like, you know, yeah. my very small hunting and gathering posse is bigger than what yours back off and get away from our food. <laughs> Steve got the femur. Yes. Wish I had a femur. Must be nice. Yeah. Glamour has always been, it's been a part of both our survival and our undoing. And I feel like it will always be. Well, coming out of the womb, it's just expectations put on you already by your own Leopold, whoever, you know, that figure is for you. And having to, no matter the the day or the age, having to confront that and try and deconstruct it your whole life or not, right? Or not deconstructing it. I was like extra struck this time too by the irony of old Salieri being like, it's been such torture for me watching my, you know, the memory of my music fade while Mozart grows more and more famous. And it's like, well, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. But also like, you're alive and can still have dessert. And Mozart is dead in a, not even in a coffin. Mozart is dead in a pile of other dead guys. You ever think about that? Thinking of that struggle, which is like that, you're alive, but also you just get to make music. Like what a fucking amazing thing. 
and Sarah, I sometimes, and I hate, maybe, who knows, I hate to be too, too transparent here, but I mm-hmm. sometimes have to be a person who shows you positive responses from people who are like, your insights changed my life mm-hmm. because you have trouble accessing and knowing that that is a glorious part of your existence. Yeah, it's true. Like, and I'm only saying that so people know that we're all fucked up in this way. <laughs> you can't see your own nectar. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, just to speak to that, like, thank you. That means so much to me, you saying that about the nectar. (laughs) And Dirk Diggler said in in Boogie Nights, like, that, what is it? God gives everyone, like, one special thing. I think we probably get, like, multiple special things of varying sizes. There's, like, more than one goodie in the bag. But I do think that, like, a lot of my brain is, like, oriented towards verbal stuff. Like, I, I empathize very much with, like, that clip of one of the... Jenner supermodel girls like forgetting how her arms worked while she tried to cut a cucumber. <laughs> well, your Dirk Diggler dick is your diction. Yeah. And it always has been. Yes. I think the thing that freaks us out a lot is I, I don't know about y'all, but is this, you know, the idea of compulsion. And so we see that in this movie, like, like Mozart can't stop. Right. And so we see other mm-hmm. virtuosos with this, like Michael Jordan or whatever, like they can't stop themselves mm-hmm. from producing. And we think like, if we had that, then surely we would be successful. And I think that's part of Salieri's point is like, I compose just as much as he does. I do just as much. And, you know, I experience that in life. It's like, ah, if I could just focus on this thing a hundred times more than I do, surely I would have different results and not necessarily. Right. It's like, I feel like that anxiety is just connected to you're going to fucking die. And people are freaked out about it. Like understandably, there's only so much time you're going to die and you probably aren't going to die as good at any of the things that you want to be. I guess now it feels like you either have to be so great at something that you can like sell Pepsi with how great you are at it or else like who even cares. And maybe now we're in a weird space where like you can monetize more approachable levels of good at something. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sure the compulsion was even, you know, to your point, like more so when you die at 35 to 45, right? Yeah. If someone doesn't keep you up all night writing your own funeral mass. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it feels age old and like the triggers for what makes a perpetual anxiety about it shift depending on sort of the the marketplace and the culture. But it feels like it all is related to I'm running out of time and I'm not going to get recognized for what I'm actually capable of. But I don't think people think they're capable of what they're capable of too, right? Like I think it's that and like the fear of like mortality and like greatness is an antidote to mortality as if it fucking matters that people are listening to your music where when you're like decomposing in a pile of other dead guys i can't stress this enough ultimately the thing is is not like the being recognized or not being recognized it's being slighted by god yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah the picture changes if you don't have like a spiteful god in the mix too maybe well, and, and to your point, Sarah, like, you know, not valuing what we are good at, like maybe if Salieri hadn't made this mental decision, he would have been the most God-given farrier of the time. Who knows? I mean, really, his problem also is that, like, he's living his entire life in a way where nobody knows who he really is or what he's really like. Like, no one is allowed to know. And, like, his entire life is about subterfuge and, like, pretending he feels and thinks things that he doesn't really. 
it feels like it's like it makes sense to feel relieved at the end of the movie because like he's finally shown his actual self to somebody. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't know. I find it reassuring that Glenn Gould thinks Mozart is stupid because Glenn Gould is also a genius. And I don't know. I just really think that like any idea that we have of like here are the geniuses and here are the normals is mm. dumb. <laughs> The thing I was reminded of when it's like, you know, there's several t- times where he's like, it's just in my head. And then now it's out. And like, that's is in the Beatles documentary that come out, the Peter Jackson one, Get Back. You see Paul McCartney write a song like that. Mm-hmm. You see Paul McCartney write Get Back in 10 minutes mm-hmm. it on the guitar, just out of his brain. And it is fucking superhuman. Yeah. yeah. And what then that stirs in anyone who observes it is a fascinating Rorschach test as illustrated by this movie, as illustrated by our conversation about it, um, by our own anxieties. Mm -hmm. It is one thing. It is a matter of perspective and priority, but it is another thing just to watch that happen and then be struck by the magic of it happening. Yeah. And like, it is magic, but also like you ever see somebody toss pizza dough. I don't think that's less magic, you know? (laughs) Yeah. What magic do we value? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then, and also that like classical music has become this thing where it's like we all need to agree on who's a genius, but like we probably do that more and more as like fewer and fewer people actually listen to the shit, you know? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And and what do we judge as genius if the mirrors of our culture are pointed in a different direction? Well, and then also that classical music, like it really, it doesn't do it any favors to put it on a pedestal. And I feel like one of the things this movie does is kind of take it down from that. Mm-hmm. To me, what this movie gives us is not like proof that Mozart was a genius. Like, I feel like you can, it's just the fact of history. You can take it or leave it, whatever. But really that Mozart was fun. And that's what matters. Fun music, apparently a fun guy. That's my argument. Mozart equals fun. It won't make your baby smarter, but it could make your baby more fun. (laughs) Just expose them to more romps. Why on earth do you want your baby to be smarter? Try and have a well-adjusted baby who has fun. Your baby is probably smarter than you want already. That's the thesis of the whole episode. Don't chase smartness, chase adjustment. Yeah. And if someone's more talented than you and you're losing your mind over it, just like pivot. Don't. (laughs) (laughs) I like something you said earlier about sort of like the sort of the pressures being amplified in America in particular. I think like the thing that is resonant is like as portrayed in the movie, this is about ego it's not about like making or breaking. Like Salieri's doing fine no matter mm-hmm. what happens. Salieri's doing great. Yeah. And so many people in the US, like, it's like, if I fuck up, I get hungry and die. Like, there's no, the performance at your job, whatever your job is, wherever you can find success, whatever, it's like, there really is just a gun to your head at any given moment. And so the anxieties around these things, like if I just had like a taste of genius, I could get rich off of that. And I could like not be terrified that I'm going to fall into a pit with no safety net. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a, um, it's hard. It's also just to honor the chase for well adjustment, which I think that is the necessary one really fucking hard to do here. (laughs) I know there's never going to be a really tough high school that parents are gunning to get their kids into. They're going to teach them to be well adjusted. It has never happened. (laughs) Well, we know 
that Mozart uh, had a father and he died. Mm -hmm. Mariana, who, in your view, is the daddy of the movie Amadeus? I think it's Donzi. This is the adult in the room and is making the hard decisions at any given time and is looking at a much broader set of circumstances than anybody else in the film, including Mm. Salieri. Mm. Yeah, I'm gonna. I mean, I'm going the same. It's joked that she's the manager at some point. I, mm-hmm. I see you brought you've brought your manager. She really mm-hmm. is. She's the manager. Mm-hmm. Also, often a person is able to have the privilege of living in joy because there are people around them making everything else possible, and she is that person in that case. She is making it possible for him to do the things that just being fully fueled by whimsy don't allow for. <laughs> And I and I like it. And I like watching her evolution as that, which, you know, is there's some positive growth in there. And in some cases, she's like, I just want to go home. I'm sick of doing kind of the the right thing every time. So, no, I love I love that character. She's like human border collie of everything. And I have to drop my fact about her because if I don't put it here, it's never going to matter except at a party. So they in real life broke up their engagement because she got her calves measured at a party by another man. Hmm. Is that why it's significant that in the party they're like, show us your legs? And she does. I wonder. Mm-hmm. I wonder. That's fascinating. Once you're married, you can show your legs at a party, but not before. No. Sarah Marshall? I mean, this is the correct choice. So I'm just going to go rogue and say that the daddy is the scene where they do the ballet without music. <laughs> it's really great. That scene is the daddy. For me. And also that wig guy. He's great. Love his energy. Yes. <laughs> Mariana, thanks so much for joining us to go back in time and spend time uh, in the torment of Salieri. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. No other torment I'd rather have. Do you have uh, <laughs> some kind of a business to promote or anything of that nature? Yes, I have an astrology website at jupitermoon.net and a very, very active Instagram. And then I also uh, do consulting for mission-driven and B Corp businesses at marianaaster.com. And you also play music for dogs. (laughs) Yes. All right, everybody, that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode. Thank you to Mariana Astor for uh, joining us and talking about this fine film. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon at patreon.com slash you are good or on Apple podcast subscriptions, supports the show and gets bonus episodes in return. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for producing the beats that make the transitions sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you just for being here. We really appreciate that we get to do this. It's pretty awesome, if you ask me. We're on Twitter and we're on Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. And I think that's all you need to know. Join us next week for a Valentine's Day conversation about eternal sunshine of the spotless mind with Rain DeGray. It's an adventure. All right, everybody. Take care. You, my friend, are good. <laughs>